0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the audio lecture series on Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a book for everyone and no one by German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Before we get into the prologue and into a discussion of the actual book, uh, it's going to be necessary for us to go over a brief history of Western philosophical and religious thought. Um, Nietzsche is in conversation uh, with these ideas and with these topics, and basically The idea is we need to understand the Western beliefs about metaphysics, about God, about reality. Because uh, really, depending upon what you believe about the nature of reality and metaphysics, that's where your ethical systems come from. The ideas about what you ought to do, what you ought not to do, what, what activities are permitted, which ones are wrong. And the way that institutions, laws, countries, nations are developed with the ideas about how reality works becomes very important for understanding how things tend to function and how human beings even see the world. Um, You can find the the influence of Christianity uh, and Western philosophy uh, very deeply ingrained in the way that people see things, the way that people interact with others, the way that people Uh, see the world. And since Nietzsche's basic contention is that Western philosophy and Western religion up till now for, I guess, the last 2,000 years, since for the last 2,000 years, it's been wrong in many ways that our, our actions, our beliefs, our thoughts run contrary to the way that reality works, the way that our biology and physiology works. And he sort of wants to demolish all the bad things that have been created in the last 2,000 years because of Christianity and because of uh, what he would consider bad philosophy and replace it with something, with a worldview that makes a lot more sense based on his system. Um, So Nietzsche's protagonist in Thus Spoke Zarathustra is Zarathustra. Uh, historically there was a historical figure named Zarathustra he was a Persian prophet Um, the Greeks knew him by the name Zoroaster and this Zoroaster character was the founder of Zoroastrianism um, which is a religion there's still a few people who believe in it today but it was a fairly big influence back in the day um, historically, he was supposed to have lived around uh, like between 1200 BC and 600 BC. The dates are a bit fuzzy, but what we do know is that he was a, a prophet and he founded a religion where the metaphysical basis of reality is a struggle between good and evil. So, everything around you, you yourself, um, everything in the cosmos is basically at bottom in its most fundamental form a struggle between good and evil. And so Nietzsche takes large issue with this, and since Zarathustra was the first person to sort of posit that that was the case, Nietzsche says, well, the hero of my book and the first person to realize this mistake and to correct it should be Zarathustra again. So that's why Nietzsche picked Zarathustra as uh, the protagonist of his book. He wasn't just looking for someone with an interesting name. Uh, it actually makes a bit of sense. And um, Nietzsche's basic contention that this sort of metaphysical lie, <clears throat> that good and evil are the basis of everything, uh, we see it not only in Zoroastrianism, which at least in the West hasn't really made that big a difference or it hasn't been a big talking point amongst people. Uh, the idea that the metaphysical uh, reality is one that's that's immediately uh, interpreted in a moral sense uh, that things at basis are good and bad and that those moral or value judgments uh, exist at the level of basic reality. Those judgments also exist in the religious and philosophical ideas that have governed Western society. Um, So the first big proponent of this idea is Plato, and Plato has been very influential in our thoughts about the modern world, uh, and thoughts about life in general. Um, and, and the way to understand Plato, the sort of the Coles note version of trying to understand Plato's metaphysics, is trying to understand uh, Plato's theory of forms. So, uh, some people might be familiar with this. Some people might have uh, heard of his allegory of the cave. Um, but basically, Plato says that um, true reality uh, cannot be known by humans. And this statement comes up in basically every every religion and continental philosophy for the next 2,000 years. It's a very common theme that uh, true reality can't be known. Um, you do see the more analytical set of philosophers that came out of England and uh, in America... Or even like Ayn Rand, they take issue with this, that you can know reality, but uh, I think uh, there are a couple examples that can show exactly what people mean by saying you can't know reality. It sort of goes against common sense, like if I'm looking at uh, like a green green leaves in front of me right now, I can sort of see, well, that's a tree and the leaves are green and the bark is brown. Like, what do you mean I can't know reality? It's right there. I can measure it. I can touch it. Um, but for Plato, reality itself is unknowable. And a good way to sort of try and explain that is to say, okay, well, let's take that tree as an example. It has green leaves. And us looking at it, we know that it has green leaves. But if you think about um, human vision and color vision specifically, um Color vision has not been a permanent feature of uh, animal optics since the dawn of time. It's actually um, very rare in the animal kingdom, and right now humans have very good color vision uh, compared to every other animal. So dogs, let's say, see in black and white. For them, if they looked at the tree, they would just see a couple shades of gray. So for them, their reality, the, the tree's leaves are gray. Like they have no idea what green is. They can't understand, the, the. if they were able to understand concepts, they wouldn't be able to understand the concept of green because they just can't experience it. Um, in primates, actually, the, the sharpness of color vision is strongly associated, uh, this has been shown scientifically, the color vision is strongly associated with the presence of ripe fruit and the the uh, presence of ripe fruit in the diets of the primates that live in that area so basically the idea is if you depend on eating fruit for your survival uh, over time uh, the development of better and better color vision emerges in that species so that it can pick out ripe fruit in the treetops and so you can sort of see like from the shift from total black and white vision to color vision, it's, it's not a night and day. It's not, oh, uh, Homo erectus had black and white vision, then Homo sapiens had perfect color vision. It's a transitionary thing that slowly emerged over time. And that allows us to ask the question that says, okay, well, look at that tree. If the leaves are green, and I know that they're green, but someone who sees in black and white only sees gray, What what does that mean for me who sees it as green? Like, is it how green is it? If someone sees it in black and white, and I sort of see like pretty green, is would it be possible if you had a different visual system to see it as even more green? Um, Basically, if this color vision thing is a continuum where humans are halfway developed or some degree developed of color vision. Uh, as it's emerged through history, through evolution. Suppose color vision kept evolving for the next billion years and got sharper and sharper. That sort of shows you that the tree, the reality of the greenness of the tree, like we, we don't fully understand. And yet while it looks green to us, different creatures would have different ideas of what that is. And thus, in that sort of sense, we can't fully understand reality. Like, we can understand that, okay, based on our visual system, it's green, but what if we had a better system? It'd be more green. And, and this is true of basically every, every aspect of reality that you could describe. We, we have a limited ability to see things, hear things, feel things, describe things. And so Plato says, well, quite rightly, reality has all these different characteristics. We can describe the tree as green, we can describe the bark of the tree as being rough, we can describe uh, the, the strength of the wood and how, how brittle it might be or how easily knocked over by wind it might be, um, and same thing with people. We can describe someone as being skinny, as being fat, as being courageous, as being honorable, as being um, strong. And basically, Plato says, okay, well, the reality that's apparent to us, we can describe certain things, but uh, reality itself, we can't understand, and the only way that we can understand reality is by using these descriptions of uh, things as they pertain to sort of the infinite version of themselves, sort of a a metaphysical like infinitely deep version of what we're looking at so and that sounds sort of complicated but to give it to go back to our tree example we say when we look at the tree we look at the leaves the leaves are green and plato would say yeah that looks like green to us but since we we don't know how infinitely green or how profoundly green that is because we have limited visual perceptors the only reason that that thing is green or the fact that we see it as green, it it's because the trees leaves share in this idea of like a universal quantity of green. Um, so it's sort of like we're looking at the skin of something like we're looking at a very thin layer of reality as it appears to us. But the actual true essence of the thing, the true nature of the thing is so profoundly more intricate than we can know. And the only reason that these descriptions can exist is because, on some metaphysical sense, in some reality, there are these pure forms of concepts that uh, things in our everyday reality pertain to. Uh, so, to give another example, uh, if we talk about humans and we talk about uh, like someone who's strong, like strength. The, the idea of strength. Uh, we know that, okay, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger back when he was doing his uh, bodybuilding work was very, very strong. So compared to every other human on the planet, maybe he's a 95 out of 100 or 100 out of 100. So in terms of human strength, he's sort of the perfect instant, instantiation of strength. You You could sort of think like, okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger is like the physical manifestation of the archetype of strength. Uh, Me, who's telling you this, might be a 15 out of 100 like as it relates to him. Whereas the whole category of strength, uh, the reason that we can describe Arnold as being strong or me being not strong is because the concept strong is a fundamental factor of reality, that strength uh, is something that it's a category that exists that Arnold, me, you, your mom, your dad, we pertain to in some way, to some degree. So the idea would be, according to Plato, that everything that we see is only a very like minor, minor representation of these general broader categories that do have a real existence. And so strength, instead of being out of a hundred like it is for humans in my example, the this sort of form of strength is this infinite quantity that it must exist in an infinite form for things within the universe to be able to pertain to it. And so um, for Plato, uh, he has these ideas of forms that every, every characteristic or a- every adjective that you can think of or every even noun you could think of Um, there must be sort of like a universal, uh, infinite version of that thing for all the other instantiations of it to exist. So it's sort of like, to give it another analogy that might help clear it up, like uh, if you're holding a book in front of you, um, books needed to have already existed in some way for you to have a book like the first person to write a book created this class of books and so sort of that class of books allows other books to exist and no book is necessarily the same but they're all books because they have the same characteristics and they relate to bookness so similar to how like before the first book was invented, no, no books could exist and no books existed. Uh, on a more metaphysical level, like the idea of book needs to exist, uh, even if no books have ever been written, for a book to come into being. So, so in the fundamental nature of reality, these things have some weird metaphysical absolute existence that uh, when we bring them into being or when we try and describe things as green or hard or strong or tall, uh, those concepts exist. And so for Plato, he—that's pretty good. I sort of like that. I think um, uh, it makes a lot of sense that we can't understand reality, and it's an interesting way of thinking to say, well, in order for like something, for us to be able to see something in reality, like there needs to be some like infinite or absolute version of it uh, that like allows us to be seeing what we're seeing. It's kind of like a neat uh, idea, uh, and so Plato. Sort of sees this and he understands, okay, well, there must be like infinite versions of the things that we see around us that I'll call the forms. And then he started, he noticed very quickly or very immediately that the different things around us um, pertain to forms in different degrees, and the forms themselves uh, constitute the reality of like smaller or bigger subsets of the aspects of reality that we see around us. So what does that mean? So Plato's concept of greenness applies to anything that has the color green. So like the things that are green that you see around around you, uh, whether it's the grass or the tree leaves or a green car or whatever it is that's green, those are green by virtue of them participating in this form of the green. Um, and so... Everything else, whether it's brown or a hot stove or uh, like gasoline or something, anything that's not green has nothing to do with green, doesn't share in that fundamental essence of reality that is greenness. And Plato noticed okay, well, so that means that some things pertain to some things in reality pertain to some forms but not others. Is there anything? Any type of form that permeates all things, Uh, which is an interesting question. So instead of narrowing yourself to like, okay, well, leaves and green cars and grass pertain to green and, you know, the quality of hardness, the concept of hardness pertains to wood and concrete and ice and maybe more things than green. um, Is there a concept that everything pertains to that everyone participates in? And so, for Plato, the the highest concept, he noticed that you know green is a subset of these colors. So like, colors are sort of a bigger form group, and so he sort of makes this hierarchy from like he doesn't actually do it, but there's a hierarchy in his system of thinking where at the very very top uh, that pertains to everything that exists, whether it's green, whether it's blue, whether it's hard, whether it's soft, whether it's physical, whether it's uh, mental, whatever it is. He says everything that exists um, participates in the form of the good. And so for Plato, that's the basis of reality, the form of the good, that everything you see around you, all reality around you, you yourself pertains to the form of the good, that the fundamental basis of reality and everything around you is fundamentally good. And so for Plato's metaphysics, similar to what we saw with Zarathustra, he's immediately ascribing sort of a value slash moral judgment uh, to the basis of reality, um, which is an interesting thing. And it becomes very important uh, in basically everything for the next 2000 years. So moving from Plato uh, to Christianity, which is sort of another of Nietzsche's biggest adversaries or that Nietzsche wants to take on the most, he has a whole book called The Antichrist, uh, where he deals solely with the church. Um, Nietzsche very famously says in Beyond Good and Evil in the introduction, and I think he also says it elsewhere in the book, he says it so succinctly, I love it, he says, Christianity is Platonism for the masses and both in sort of the similarity of the ideas that the New Testament uh, espouses and that Jesus espouses and that uh, Paul when he was sort of forming the church espouses Um, both in the similarity of the ideas and then also in the the writings of some of the early church fathers and some of the early scholars from I don't know, two hundred AD to eight hundred AD, and even after that, a lot of the work they did to give Christianity sort of more of a an academically sound basis was to take Plato, take Platonic philosophy, and say, "Hey, look, there's a lot of similarities here. All the stuff that Jesus was saying earlier, um, that makes sense, and we're we're doing the same thing here." And so, um. When it comes down to what I said earlier about Christi- uh, religion and philosophy, basically trying to get at the same thing and trying to describe the same thing, the, the really only difference that's noticeable and relevant for us is that religions tend to do things with a lot of stories and do it more mythologically and more on the basis of the sayings of one prophet and what, what, what his authority means. Whereas philosophers or Western philosophy has generally uh, tried to just give things more of an academic sounding and more rigorous uh, basis. So, Christianity, um, Jesus espouses a religion of love, that God is love, God is good. And uh, a lot of more mystical writers in Christianity, and a lot of the early church fathers who took a Neoplatonist stance on religion, they look at a lot of the sayings that Jesus had. And if you want to look at your Bible at home, or if you want to look it up, reading the Gospel of John is probably the best best way to figure this out for yourself. But Jesus has a, a lot, he's sort of like a prophet type who had a mystical experience realizing that He was uh, part of the universe. He was part of this wonderful reality that gives birth to itself and has a weird, almost magical, generative property to it. And he realizes, oh, wow, uh, if God is anything, God is uh, sort of this weird energy of the universe, and I am also that. And so if you read the Gospel of John or if you read a lot of the early church fathers or a lot of uh, some of the later saints in the Christian church, um, they'll all sort of focus on that. And you can find similar similar things in basically every world religion, uh, whether it's the Kabbalah in Judaism or the Sufi sect in Islam or um, a lot of Buddhism. I think the Eastern religions tend to focus more on clearer descriptions of the mystical experience and what reality seems to be and how we fit into that. Uh, so Buddhism certainly does that. Taoism is pretty good at that. Uh, a lot of the Indian different religious texts are very good at that, whether it's the, the Vedas or the Upanishads or uh, even the Bhagavad Gita. There's a lot of very interesting similarities between all the world religions when they're trying to talk about God and trying to talk about human humanity's relationship to it and how we we are a part of God we are a part of reality that has become conscious of that fact and so when you get back to Christianity you see Jesus who has this sort of realization of wow I'm part of this whole reality thing like that's really cool that's very good And that's where a lot of his ethical insights about, you know, we should all love each other and you shouldn't hurt each other because we're all brothers and sisters. Like we're all children of God. Um, And in a weird sense, if you try and, if you hurt someone, you're hurt, you're only hurting yourself because in a weird way, like you're the same person on a sort of metaphysical um, unity of the universe type level of thinking, you are in a weird way, the same entity. And so, now, uh, in the Christian religion, you see a lot of similarity with Plato, where the basis of reality is this uh, loving, good, like wonderfully, 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 tremendously good, good thing. So if you think about what I was saying about Plato and how sort of the 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 forms of things are sort of infinite in their depth compared to the pallid two dimensional version that we see in front of us. Um, good can't be emphasized enough for Plato. It would be good raised to the infinity times infinity, just, uh, like so tremendously good. And, uh, Jesus and a lot of the exuberant ecstatic things that he was saying are sort of based on that same feeling where once you realize you are part of this thing, like, and you realize how amazing life and reality and the universe are just in themselves, like how interesting they are, how fascinating, the world is how reality is, how it sort of like unfolds. It's a very interesting experience to realize that you are part of that. And so uh, with, with both Plato and Christianity, there's this idea that uh, the reality that we can see, all the changes that we see, all the construction, destruction, the fact that plants grow and then they die, the fact that people are born and then they grow and then they die, all that sort of stuff is seen as merely apparent. It's sort of uh, derogatorily cast aside as, oh, it's merely the apparent world. The really interesting thing is this, the underlying reality that we can't understand that gives gives the fullness to all of the things that we do see. So like, okay, it's cool that the leaves are green, but like, wow, can you imagine how green green could be? Like the f- pure form of green must be amazing. And so they sort of... um uh, slander, or they try and cast doubt upon the things that we can actually sense and see around us. And not only, uh, not only that, but they also, the early philosophical tradition and Christianity itself up until, at least for the philosophical tradition, up until the, about the 1800s, they sort of see the underlying basis of reality as different from, uh, what we see in that what we see sort of moves around and changes and there there seems to be like constant change. They see underlying reality as sort of permanent good, like permanent bliss. And you can sort of see that that's where the idea of, um, that Christian idea of like, oh, we're born into sin and we're born into suffering and God cast us into suffering. Uh, like why would this wonderful, holy, Energy that pervades the universe uh, that we can't understand. Why would he send us to here to suffer? Like, oh, I can't wait until I'm dead and I go to heaven. I rejoin the Father. I I, I become one again with the Father. I, I'm no longer a separate entity from him. I'm I'm dead. I become part of the universe again. And since that's a sort of singular entity of joy that is always unchanging, like that's better than being alive. And so uh it's not only the fact that as nietzsche rails against that people think that uh the basis of reality is good that causes problems but it's also the fact that people think that the basis of reality is static that's a problem so when you get to uh i'm going to skip ahead several centuries when you get to immanuel kant uh another german philosopher hugely hugely monumental in uh the development of philosophy and continental philosophy, philosophy in particular, but world philosophy generally, uh, Kant was a very, very ardent Christian, and he was setting out philosophically to sort of set the bounds on human reason and give a philosophical underpinning to the Platonic and Christian idea that we can't know reality and that human faculties just aren't designed to know it. And so um, a lot of the terminology that you'll still find in philosophy or if you're reading Kant, uh, one of the famous terms he uses is like thing in itself. It's usually hyphenated, but he says, uh, he'll often be talking about reality and our inability to know the thing in itself. And again, that's just another term for what Plato was referring to as like the unknowable reality or the category of the good, um, or what Christians or even, or Muslims or Jews call God, um, for, for Kant and for his more rigorous, more sort of, uh, scholarly appropriate explanation of reality he calls reality the thing in itself it's this unknowable entity that we are but we can't know um and so he sort of tries very hard to set a basis upon which this thing in itself is the most important thing again the the word thing there is very important because it it leads you to believe that reality is unchanging and it's merely the appearance the things that we can see that change um so when we get to the late 1700s early 1800s um we see one of the biggest changes come along in philosophy that has really ever happened and uh, it's partly done by Hegel partly done by Schopenhauer uh Schopenhauer starts talking about it after Hegel but for Nietzsche Schopenhauer is sort of a bigger influence we'll talk more about him um these guys are the first ones to say okay reality itself this thing in itself like it no longer it doesn't make sense to say that it is unchanging and so with Hegel and Schopenhauer the thing that they do is they sort of knock that idea down which is one of the two sort of things that I've been talking about being important like if you think the fundamental nature of reality is uh, uh, some conflict between good and evil or if God is And the nature of reality is love, or the nature of reality is the form of the good. That's going to inform how you think about certain things, as is the idea of a static reality versus a moving reality. And so Schopenhauer and Hegel take that one on. They say, you know, reality isn't static, reality is moving. And so for Schopenhauer, and they both use the same word, they use the word will, with a capital W, will. And so Schopenhauer says, you know, it's it, reality isn't this like thing in itself that's unchanging, and it's only appearance that's changing. Um, reality is this big moving force called will, and he calls it the will to life, the will to existence. And this is a big change, uh, and it's very important. This will be, this will center, uh, this will feature centrally in a lot of things that Nietzsche is going on about and his discussion about um, how the institutions that Christianity and that uh, the West have developed, and since they're based partly on the idea that there is sort of a permanent reality underneath things and a lot of our psychological ideas and a lot of our concepts about ourselves and other people are based on that idea, this is a very important change in the way of uh, people thinking and how we how we interact with ourselves with others with the institutions that we create with our communities so this is a big change and so schopenhauer says you know the everything is in a constant state of flux everything is constantly changing and it's not just he calls appearance representation like the representation of reality what we can understand about reality what we see what we hear what we touch it is changing and so is reality. It's not, there's no longer that conflict between uh, God or uh, the form of the good being sort of this permanent, unmoving force. Schopenhauer says, no, it's it's constantly moving. The fundamental nature of reality is is one of movement. And whether you look at um, astrophysics and cosmology where, you know, stars are born and die and they're constantly moving and, and the shapes of uh, the, the shapes of, uh, galaxies is constantly moving, and the the structure of the observable universe is constantly changing. Nothing is ever stuck in one spot. Uh, whether you're looking at it from the very big down to the very small, in terms of quantum mechanics, even um, there's no like there's no such thing as just a an atom stuck in space with no movement. Um, atoms are this weird sort of half wave, half particle thing that's like moving through time, and so. Uh, Schopenhauer says, you know, it doesn't make sense to say reality is this static thing. Like, everywhere you look, the thing in front of you is moving. So obviously reality is this moving thing. And then Schopenhauer says, not only is it this moving thing, but everything that it's tending towards is tending towards life. Like, things want to live, things want to continue to exist. And so whether you're looking at biological organisms that, you know, like, animals don't willingly go die <clears throat> they try to stay alive, they try and mate, they try and, uh, like, have children, they try not to die, uh, like, everything is, like, if you take a garden where everything is inorganic and you plant seeds, like, the tendency of moving life is to sort of, uh, or of the moving universe is to live, so it's like when you see one of those cool, uh, like, time-lapse videos of strawberries growing, it's really an interesting thing to watch because uh, it shows that reality is this sort of thing that's like giving birth to itself. It's constantly in motion, and it doesn't really need to be guided by anything, but reality itself seems to be urging itself on towards life, and that's what Schopenhauer said. Um, But Schopenhauer also gave everything a very pessimistic outlook. He said, you know, there's so much suffering in the world, there's so much suffering in life, And that's because this will to live just incessantly pushes us on. That all the problems that we face are sort of this will and we need to be able to escape from the problems caused by that. Um, Nietzsche comes along and he says, great, I love this idea that things are becoming. Nothing is static as a being. Everything is constantly changing. Loves that idea because it does describe reality better. But Nietzsche says, it's not just that things are becoming, it's that they're, he says Schopenhauer is wrong in saying that it's the will to live or the will to exist. He says it's actually will to power. So capital W, capital P, like everything in reality is an instantiation of this will to power, that the underlying reality, what was originally seen as the conflict between good and evil, what was originally seen by Plato as the form of the good, what was originally seen by the Christians as God, the the fundamental essence of reality is this moving, uh, moving thing that is tending towards expressions of power. And so a lot of people, I'm going to pause here and say, a lot of people say, oh, well, I've heard of that, like the will to live and willpower, like, oh, you know, like, my friend Bill has a lot of willpower. You sure can't get through anything. You're like, oh, you know, they got through that horrible time because they're they have a strong will to live. Um, that's not really what Schopenhauer or or Nietzsche were trying to go for. They're they're not describing human psychological traits. They're describing the essence of reality. Everything around you, from that tree in front of you to the car in your driveway, to how the how the galaxies form and how grass grows and how cows give birth and the evolution of birds and everything around you is driven is this moving process uh, whose tendency for Nietzsche at least is towards power and what Nietzsche means by power is a little bit difficult to understand and it's that's because there's no it, it unfolds in different ways, but basically a good way to think of it is to not just think of, oh, well, you know, like physical power, the, like the bigger brute wins and everything wants to become bigger and stronger. Uh, nor is it correct to say, oh, well, you know, like power is just money or power is just strength or whatever it is. Power, <clears throat> it, it, it's more dependent upon the environment. Um, but it it tends to manifest itself in increasing complexity Uh, so whether it's the unfolding of the universe and the development of heavier atoms within stars as the universe has aged and gotten more complex and, and not just the creation of heavier elements which allow for more complex compounds to be built and then for life to develop um, in sort of this evolutionary process of enhanced complexity, but also even the the structure of the universe from the very first galaxies were, were just ginormous, uh, patternless clouds of stars to what we see uh, in more recent history when they look through the Hubble telescope at closer areas of space to us where it's really nice spiral galaxies or ellipse galaxies or things with a little bit more structure to them, um, whether it's from the high level there or the low level of the creation of more complex atoms and elements and compounds um to humans like as humans develop we tend to you know we learn through school and we get older and we develop more complex interests and the music that we used to like and the candy that we used to like uh, like our tastes sort of develop more and more through life we become more complex and even as humans developed once upon a time when we were more brutish than we were, yes, the stronger the person, the more power they had um, but but also when intelligence started to develop and and beings were capable of using enhanced intelligence to amass greater dominion on the things around them when Nietzsche says will to power that's it's more appropriate to think of that like more complexity, more capability, and uh, exploiting the the areas in an environment that, uh, can be exploited for like the gain of the thing that is expanding. Um, so we'll see that, uh, like evolution isn't this constant upward course and evolution is sort of like the word that you would use to describe the unfolding of the will to power in biological organisms. Um, that's sort of what, like reality is doing through the evolution of different beings that's evolution so that's the minor process of how the inorganic sort of becomes organic and becomes more than what it used to be but evolution isn't an always an upward trend and we're going to get into that a bit when we start talking about the prologue but for nietzsche the will to power the best way to think about it isn't just that oh you know things uh, like reality wants to be a living creature and then once it's a living creature it just wants to live uh, for Nietzsche, there are many examples that he uses to point out, well, hey, you know, a lot of times people are willing to sacrifice their life or risk their life for um, for power. So whether it's, you know, the, the wolf that wants to be the alpha male of the pack, he's taking on a big risk biologically. He's now to, to take that position. So, like, other wolves are going to want to fight him. He has to be the leader that decides, like, where to go for food. Like, there's a lot more responsibility on that person for taking that risk. And Schopenhauer Schopenhauer's idea doesn't really explain that. Nor does it explain, like, uh, if you look back at uh, maybe medieval European history or Roman history or even, even American history, anywhere you look where someone wants to be the leader or the king or the president, um, it's sort of this crazy thing that... People are taking a lot of risks to put themselves in a situation which is by no means easy. that's where sort of the Damocletian sword that hangs over the throne by a thread that if you make a single mistake you're you're gonna get deposed or thrown out or killed or Shakespeare's quote that heavy heavy lies the head that wears the crown there's a lot of responsibility and uh, stress that comes from being put in those situations that isn't adequately explained by Schopenhauer's will to live but Nietzsche's will to power sort of explains it a bit better people want to uh, continuously expand and use their energy to develop themselves and gain dominion over things and even at the risk of their own life they're willing to do that. So uh, that's a pretty good 40-minute description of the basis of Western philosophy and religion. Um, I think uh, the idea of the will to power is one of Nietzsche's central ideas. It That theme sort of guides most of his thought and the way that he sees everything. So you, we're going to be able to see that Nietzsche is going to be taking a look at The world and how people think and what people have been taught and the way that our worldviews are constructed and the way that our institutions, whether it's the church or the state or our educational systems are constructed. And instead, of he's going to look at those through this new lens of seeing reality as will to power rather than, you know, reality is this like good thing that we all take part in. He's going to look at it from will to power and say, okay, listen, we have to think differently because our biology the way that we've evolved the the way that our physiology and biology wants to go is based on fundamentally different principles than what we originally built these institutions on so in order to succeed as a a person a community a country a nation as a species we need to take into account the fact that we have been horribly wrong about everything and that we need to rebuild everything from the ground up based on uh based on this new understanding of reality. And so um there's going to be through the course of this book or if you're interested in self-development and sort of what I what I've done with all this searching in my life and trying to understand more about reality has been sort of the microcosm version of that where I say well I want to be the best version possible of who I am so I need to understand how reality works that will help me better understand myself and how to succeed in the world and having to sort of like tear down all the things about myself that were based on bad philosophy or bad religion and then rebuild things in their place that are more suitable to how reality actually works it's it's a painful process so whether it's uh whether it's on a societal level where you know uh countries that were predominantly Christian or Catholic become anti Christian and people become atheists or whatever. there are growing pains in everything um but I think that Nietzsche provides us the best direction to go in um but just be warned that if it's about a personal thing that you realize that Nietzsche's pointed out that you're wrong about or about ideas that you have built a lot of your life on that Nietzsche comes along and says well this is ridiculous or you're using christian thinking even though you don't believe in god um there's going to be a lot of um Nietzsche likes to destroy a lot uh <laughs> he, he likes destroying ideas and destroying different idols he, one of his uh one of his last books it's a great book is uh Twilight of the Idols and then the subtitle is Twilight, Twilight of the Idols, or How to Philosophize with a Hammer. And he just goes around trying to knock things down. And so uh, it's sort of like the, like uh, when did it come out? 1800s, 1900s, I can't remember. But uh, there was an economist called Schumpeter. And uh, his idea was creative destruction. Uh, and so it's this, Nietzsche's almost a philosophical Schumpeter where he in order to create new things that are good often the old bad things need to be destroyed it's sort of like if you buy a plot of land with a crummy decrepit house on it where you know the 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 basement has all sorts of mold in the walls and the the, the structure is just unsound in order to build a better house you got to knock that old one down but if you're sentimental or weak or just like want to like have that old house it's it's uh not going to be a pleasant experience. So some of the ideas that uh, Nietzsche is going to present, some of the ideas that we're going to discuss, I'm just warning you guys now, they will they'll probably hit a nerve or two, uh, and I just want you guys to be aware of that, but to understand that all, all growth requires suffering and all growth requires change. And I think that once you sort of rebuild your house and rebuild who you are, think about ways that your community or friend group or family... Um, is relying on bad philosophy or bad ideas, and you want to change that. There's going to be like pain, but it'll be largely worth it. Um, so two last things before we get into the prologue, and they're they're comparatively minor to what we just talked about in terms of the history and development of Western philosophy and religion. But uh, there's two key words that I. I want to clarify it at the outset as best I can what they mean. And those are the the words of spirit and soul. Um, These come up a lot in Nietzsche, not just in Zarathustra, but in all his other books. Um, They come up in pop culture all the time. They come up in religion, certainly. They come up basically everywhere. And it's my contention that basically... 93% of people, I know that's oddly specific for an off-the-cuff guess, but 93% of people uh, just use those ideas wrong. They don't know what they mean. They don't know what they refer to. Um, And my personal experience when I was younger, and I would come across those terms, and I didn't come up in a particularly religious household, um, but when I'd hear them on TV or I'd I'd hear people refer to them the sort of uh, English, uh, in terms of North American and England, uh, the English view that I had about both of these things was I, I sort of heard them being used interchangeably, and they seemed to be these ethereal things that no one could really name about themselves, but they somehow related to like the divine that, oh, well, when I die, my spirit will ascend to heaven and I'll be with God or even conversely, the exact same thing, but said with soul, like, oh, well, when I die, my soul will go rejoin with God. Like, um, and I think that because of that, I never really gave those ideas any credence because it didn't really make any sense. And no one, no one was able to describe either of them to me. And I think most people don't even know that there's a difference between the two, but Nietzsche uses these two terms frequently and he means very different things with them. Uh, And it is a bit difficult to describe, but I'm going to do my best. Um, So the easier one probably to describe is spirit. Uh, In German, the word for spirit is geist. And uh, so like poltergeist or zeitgeist. And so um, geist can be translated into English as either spirit or mind. And when you think about that, uh, like I like to use the mind translation. It made it made a lot more sense to me when I was trying to piece this book together the first dozen times I was reading it. But now I like using the word spirit. Although when I talk to my friends and I talk to them about my spirit, I feel like a new age person who doesn't know what he's talking about because that's the only way people use that term when they're saying, "Oh, like oh my spirit, like a." I'm just going to be so free spirited. Like people just sound weird in English when they use that word. But in German, it's a very respectable word. Everyone uses it. Um, I remember I was reading uh, the book Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I didn't get through that thing. It's a behemoth. Um, but the, one of the characters, he's a minor character, but he's a tennis coach. And he's a German tennis coach. And so the narrator is sort of describing this German tennis coach And he picks up on this sort of interesting use of the word Geist in German uh, because they use it for the word mental as well. And so the narrator says, oh, well, you know, like an American coach would describe tennis as being a mental game. This teacher, this German teacher says tennis is a spiritual game. And so when Germans use the word spirit or spiritual, they're really talking about mental. And sort of like your the the way that your mind works, the sort of active thinking process that happens when you're thinking about something. So I mentioned earlier the word zeitgeist, which translates uh, into English as like spirit of the times, and people people use it to describe sort of what the current um, generalized thinking of a community or group or country is on a topic. Uh, so to use an example that comes to mind right now, like the current zeitgeist of Americans towards gay marriage is more pro-gay marriage than it was 20 years ago. So the zeitgeist change uh, over time because people change and the way that we see things changes. But the, like the word geist, when you see the word spirit somewhere, think about Sort of whenever you're engaging in the world or walking around or talking to someone, when you're thinking about something and you're being active in your thinking, that's what I think of when I think of spirit. It's sort of the moving mental process. And in my head, it, maybe this is from reading too much Nietzsche, but it also has almost a directionality towards it, or um, it's almost at the top of my mind, which will become important when we talk about the soul. Because uh, when I talk about spirit, I, I sort of think of things being at the heights of my spirit. Uh, so like the things that I've thought of or the finest things that I've ha- thought of are sort of like the the heights of my spiritual development. Um, so when we talk about the word soul, I think a lot of people are, again, use this word interchangeably with spirit, but I think it's a very different thing. And when you see it with Nietzsche and when you read it other places, I think it's more helpful to try and understand it as, again, another part of your your mental functioning but I sort of see it more as like my resting disposition of awareness that is sort of always operating Um, and so while the spirit can sometimes be like inactive or your your mind can be inactive and you're not like thinking about something like when you're watching a TV show that isn't particularly uh, mentally challenging, your, your spirit probably isn't working, your, your mind isn't working, you're just sort of sitting there. But your soul is sort of a permanent, uh, like, mental ground of who you are that everything is sort of going into. And so uh, when I talk about soul or when Nietzsche talks about soul, there's often, like, again with spirit i sort of talked about you know the heights of the spirit or like the spirit is like soaring or whatever it is with soul i tend to think of depths it seems to be the thing that like is more connected to the unconscious mind it seems to like fade more into the chaos of like your organic being and when you're just watching tv it's sort of like that sort of passive low hum that's current that's always going on and so it's more depth of the spirit uh, depth of the soul or like he's got a very profound soul, he's got a grave disposition. So when you're thinking about your conscious awareness, and Nietzsche, again, is very focused on people's conscious awareness of both who they are and what's going on around them. Um, Spirit seems to be that active, like higher up, higher level mental functioning, whereas soul seems to be that more permanent, like lower one that is sort of sort of who you are from like a personality perspective, a reaction perspective. It's where your emotions more, you would tend to like feel your emotions more in your conscious awareness. That's probably more your soul. Um, so that's about all I wanted to talk about in this little um, overview of Western philosophy and key concepts that Nietzsche is going to be in conversation with. Um, so thanks again for listening, and we will, uh, get a chance to speak again when we actually get into the book in the next lecture in Zarathustra's prologue. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @AlexJDrake. Drake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.